be here with you today again. Um, finishing our series on Ruth um, has been a, a real joy for me to, to go through this book and study it and, and read it. And if, if I'm being honest, uh, I was talking to my, my dad the other day, sharing a little bit of what I've been learning from the book. And I said, like, I could have taken four months, one, one chapter a month, because there's so much. Um, and, and, and in fact, there is. Um, and it's been great to be allowed to, to study it and bring to you back the conclusions and things that I've been finding out. There's a lot of things that, that I have learned, and I hope that you have learned a lot of things too. Um, so let's do a little bit of a, of a recap of, of what we've been seeing so far. We have to remember that the story of Ruth invites us to consider a manifest contrast. There, there's always a two sides, right? Like uh, almost as, as is black and white. Um, there is loss and gain. There's famine and abundance. There's death and birth. There's chaos and control. There's always this display of forces. But this is not uh, to say that the world functions uh, as the idea of the yin and yang. It's, it's, it's nothing like that. On the contrary, the book of Ruth teaches and shows us that God is the ruling force, that God is the ruling element, that God is above everything and controlling everything. In chapter 1, we have the introduction to Elimelech's family, his wife, Naomi, two sons, Malon and Kilian. This is the time when the judges rule over Israel and there was a famine in the land. That's the backdrop the dark times of um, the period where Ruth is narrated. Elimelech then takes his family to the pagan city of Moab, natural enemies of Israel and unrighteous habitants of the land. Elimelech died, and the momentary sojourn on the land of Moab became his place of burial. And Kilian and Malon took for themselves Moabite women, entering Ruth and Orpah. The series of unfortunate events continues as both sons also died leaving Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, widow, and stranded. But the news of the mercy of the Lord travels through the land, carrying the hope for a future back in Bethlehem, the house of bread. Naomi returns to Judah, but on the road back to Israel, she is followed by her two daughters-in-law. After taking the word of Naomi, Orpah leaves, leaves and decides to go back to his people and to the, to the prospect of a better future than to be a Moabite widow in a foreign land. This is the last time we hear about her. But we are clung to Naomi with Ruth, who in a life-changing, faith-driven motivation, pleads herself not only to her mother-in-law, but to the Lord Yahweh. Her moment of conversion and entering into the covenant of God and the rest of his people. In Bethlehem, we are introduced to the season of harvest. Naomi and Ruth are back into the land, but also they're back in need. They don't have any relief from their current situation, and I think it is important to emphasize that things are still quite difficult. So they go from bad to worst. So this is, this is a moment where the gloomy clouds of uncertainty, the sorrow of loss and the hopelessness, in what it seems to be a just-wait-and-see type of situation. But Ruth is not feeling sorry for herself, nor for Naomi. She is occupied. Ruth 
rejects the idol of self-indulgence. As a matter of fact, she rejects completely the idea of just laying around, moping her way out of this. And she asks Naomi in a humble-hearted attitude if it's okay for her to go to the fields and collect some food. It is in the fields of barley where we're introduced to the character of Boaz. And the fields where Ruth was looking to find favor, to find some kind of grace. And in this portion of chapter 2, we start to see the glimpses of, of God's redemptive plan. Because we know where it's headed. I don't know about you sometimes, but I, I feel like I would like to read this for the first time. Like they did. In a way, like without knowing what was going to happen. Without having still Jesus in, in the picture and, and see everything unfolding. And having the, this increasing momentum of, of where is all this going? And have the revelation of Jesus at the end. What does this have to do with, with anything? And as we know, because God is in, in his providential care and direction has made all of this to have to do with everything. Because God is in control. So this, all of this, all of the things that happen in Ruth have to do with everything. Because God is in everything. So Ruth and the field of barley has this providential encounter of, uh, with Boaz, who happens, right? and we talk about this have happens of life. It so happens that this Boaz, it's a kinsman redeemer. And we have discussed the fact that there are no accidents in life. Coincidence and mere luck are a, are a fantasy, a, a, myth, a mythos. All there is is the providence of a sovereign God who works Everything for his glory and for the good of his people. Boaz, the man of excellence. Ruth, the woman of excellence. A match made in heaven as everything else is. So the plan is set in motion. Naomi quickly forgets that she is Mara. She's never called Mara, actually. She's the only one who called herself Mara. No one else has called her Mara. Better. No, that, that, that's already forgotten. That's already in the past, because she's now seen the hope that lies ahead. It's there. And she blesses the Lord for it. A somewhat risky plan Naomi plots for Ruth. But just because it is risky, it doesn't mean that it needs to be made or done recklessly. Carefully, Naomi instructed Ruth to follow this plan. And Ruth does it. But she still adds a little bit. She adds what she seems necessary. And we saw in chapter 3 that Boaz's reply gave Ruth six, um, six things to take with her. She took a promise, all that you say I will do for you. He gave her a compliment, all my people within the gates of the city know that you are a woman of excellence. He gave her shocking news, there is a kinsman redeemer closer than I. Also he gave her assurance of redemption. Stay this night and I will be in the morning that if, we, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not desire to redeem you, then I will redeem you as Yahweh lives. Boaz gives a, a Ruth a reminder. Purity matters. So she laid at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And also he gave Ruth a provision. Give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. And chapter 3 finishes with this cliffhanger. 
There is another, a closer kinsman redeemer. This man legally, he has dips unto redeeming the land, Ruth and Naomi. So this whole thing of the kinsman redeemer might be a bit confusing or might be going over our head. So let me try to explain a little bit again what is the idea of the law and the kinsman redeemer and the role that he plays into this. To understand the laws of redemption, we need also um, know in addition, to know in addition, I think I mentioned when I first started the series that there is a, a lot to unfold in this, in this book. There's, there's too many things that the author assumes that we know. And in a way, we should know about this. So it would make our studies easier. So this is an encouragement for you to read the Old Testament and to study the Old Testament and not just go through it as a, as a storybook. You need to meditate on it. There's a lot of things happening. There's a lot of things that are related to one another. So if we can quickly turn to in our Bibles to Leviticus chapter 25, and we're going to read five verses, 25 um, chapter of Leviticus, verses 8 to um, 13. Chapter 25 of Leviticus, chapter, um, chapter 25, verses 8 to 13. It says, You are also to count of seven Sabbaths of years for yourself. Seven times seven years, so that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. You shall then sound a ram's horn abroad of the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound a horn all through your land. You shall, you shall thus set apart as holy the fiftieth year and proclaim a release through the land to all that is inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own possession of land, and each of you shall return to his family. You shall have the fiftieth year as a jubilee. You shall not sow, you shall not reap what grows of its own accord. You shall not gather in, um, in from its untrimmed vines. For it is a job, jubilee, it shall be holy to you. You shall eat its produce out of the field. On this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his own possession of land. The word jubilee literally means ram's horn, um, ram's horn in Hebrew. So it is defined in Leviticus 25 verse 9 as the sabbatical year after seven cycles of seven years. So 49 years. And the 50th year was to be a time of celebration and rejoicing for the Israelites. The ram's horn was blown on the 10th day of the 7th month to start the 50th year of universal redemption. The year of the Jubilee involved a year of release from indebtedness and all types of bondages. Verses 39 to 55. All prisoners and captives were set free. All slaves were released. All debts were forgiven. And all property was returned to its original owners. So in addition, all labor was to cease for one year. It was a sabbatical year. And sabbatical in all the sense. And those bound by labor contracts and slavery, were released from them. So one of the benefits of the Jubilee was that both the land and the people were able to rest. It was the will of the Lord that the land and his people were able to, we were able to rest. So the year of Jubilee is essentially a massive socioeconomic, religious, and God-driven practice. It was a policy that shaped the people of God in a distinctive way. 
It will separate God's people from the pagan nations, and it will be a sign that God's presence changes God's people. Because God dwells with his people, the way his people live changes. And I'm, and I'm hoping that you're getting something out of this already. It affects even the way they have property and employment. It changes the way they relate to one another. The way they treat one another. This is the way that God is using to show how different he is, but also how different his people is supposed to be. So this section in Leviticus 25 begins by, by God declaring that the land shall not be sold in perpetuity or forever because the land is his. He is the owner of the land. Leviticus 25 verse 2 has already established that the land that they are going to enter belongs to the Lord. We know that all the earth belongs to the Lord. Everything belongs to him. But here, he is highlighting this particular land. And why? What it doesn't mean is that God owns, owns it. It means that with God's ownership come certain rights and privileges that are his and his alone. And because God owns it, no one else can own it, own it the way that God owns it. So this means that for the Israelites, their ownership of the land is temporary. This is a picture of stewardship. As it teaches that the Israelites to hold on to property in a way that is different from the nations around them. This is important to understand because without recognizing this, redemption won't make sense. Most of us might read this and wonder if it's unfair that the people have to give up their land every 50 years. But if we realize that this land is not theirs, but God's, this changes things. From Leviticus 25 to verses 25 to verses 42, we also read of God's provision in relation to the property of the Israelites. Specific circumstances were detailed. For example, the poor who sells his property. So we see that redemption is made possible. And someone can redeem someone immediately or leading up to the Jubilee or at the Jubilee. In this case, a nearest redeemer can redeem this person or this land. This means that this redemption is possible by a blood relation or someone in the tribe. And then in the time of the Israelites was a, was a clan-based possession. So this is the system that the book of Ruth is based on. A poor who is unable to maintain himself, Leviticus 25, verses 35 to 38. These are the ones who could seek and reach for redemption. A poor who is unable to maintain himself or the poor who sells themselves as slaves. Verses 39 to 42 in Leviticus 25. So this quick summary identifies that in the practice of redemption... There are certain aspects or concepts that are overlapping with what we're seeing in Ruth. So to put it in other words, redemption is needed because bondages exist. Poverty, slavery, poor management, famine, disaster, sin, judgment. So at the end of Leviticus 25, 
the, passages, the passage ends with a reason for these instructions. God declares once again that the people are him, are his, sorry, are his. People are his. Servants, slaves. These are the slaves, the servants that he brought out of Egypt. And again and again, God, God reminds them about their identity. The slaves are his, and so is the land. They're not their own, and the land is not theirs. Their identity is wrapped up in what God says about them, and what God did for them, and what God says is going to do in them and through them. Now, all this connects to them to what we're seeing in the, narr in the narration of, of Ruth. The kinsman redeemer is a male relative who, according to the laws of the Pentateuch, had the privilege or the responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who was in trouble, danger, or need. So the Hebrew term goel for kinsman redeemer designates one who delivers or rescues. Someone, someone that who delivers or rescues someone or redeems property for this person. Know that it's called a privilege or a responsibility. You can do it willingly or you can be legally forced to do it. Because this is God's provision to take care for his people, for the people in need. So back in our chapter, our book in Ruth, we see that there is cost and redemption, but there are also romance and redemption. As we have seen through this book, people just don't jump into action without thinking. They, they are carefully to, before doing, they think about what they're going to do, about what they're going to say. There is no improvisation, so now we can see that Boaz has a plan. There's always a plan. There's always something happening. See again in verse 1 in chapter 3. For the recurrent use of the word behold in the book. Once again, nothing happens by accident. And Boaz is purposely seeking the redemption of Ruth and Naomi. So the plan of Boaz had three main necessary elements to work out. He goes to the gate. In the Near East, the gate of a city was the place to conduct legal transactions or where judicial procedures will take place, but also was used as a place to conduct official businesses. So he sat there. The intention of Boaz is to wait for this relative to pass by and so have a chat with him about the situation regarding Naomi and more intentionally Ruth. The second element in Boaz's plan then is this close relative or literally a kinsman redeemer, someone that bound by the Mosaic law, had the privilege or obligation to restore the well-being and inheritance of the family in need. And there is an interesting detail here. The word used as friend in verse um, 1. Turn aside, friend. This is more of a play of words. It's a delivered, deliberately literary tool to almost dismiss this person as irrelevant. Some commentators say that the author of Ruth has been very careful with names, but purposely has omitted this close relative's name 
and instead uses almost a form of, of nickname, as if this could be just be a type of John Doe. Who is this? It doesn't matter. It's a guy. It's a dude that was walking by. So, hey, friend. This is just a John Doe. We don't know who he is. Some scholars held the position that this kinsman redeemer, in fact, might be a brother to Elimelech, and that Boaz could be a nephew of him. This information is it's, it's shadow in the narrative. I, I, I'm, I'm sharing what I found in my study. You can take it or, or disregard it. Um, I'll, I'll leave that to you. So we now have two of the three elements. We have the gate, this, this important place where serious business is discussed. We have um, the kinsman redeemer. He has the second, the second interest party, a close relative. But now he needs reliable and respected witnesses. Um, elders. Verse Two, and he took ten men of the elders of the city. This word, elders, could be literally translated from the Hebrew word as to have a beard. Not necessarily someone old, just someone that has a beard. Because beard also comes with a certain idea of age. Not necessarily old age. So, it's a sign of experience and respect. The bushier, longer the beard, the wisest and respected. You, you be the judge. I see, I, I'm looking at some of you, you need a beard. You need to go and get a beard. So, I'm keeping my eye on some, some, of, some of you have really, really wise and respected beards. Where's Nathan? Yeah. So these elders, again, they're not just passing by. Uh, remember that this is Boaz's plan. So he took them. He took ten men of the elders. And it is recorded that for this type of business, this type of, of, of legal discussion that, that Boaz wants to have to this kinsman redeemer, this, this relative... It's only necessary to have three people, but he gets ten. And there's no uh, purposeful explanation for the presence of the ten elders, although it is stated in later Judaism that for the recital of the marriage benediction, there were ten elders to be present at the moment of this. And in this case, we could assume that Boaz has marriage in mind. So I wouldn't be surprised if this, this is what... Um, Boaz is thinking. Because we have seen already that, that Boaz is wise, he's intelligent, and, and he, it is likable that he's thinking ahead. And we can see also that indeed he is very serious about this, this whole matter of redeeming um, Ruth and Naomi and the land. So this, he's serious about this matter of, of Ruth, of marriage, and redemption. Now remember how chapter 3 ended with Naomi giving words to Ruth. Then she said, sit, then my daughter, until you know how the matter falls into place. For the man will not remain quiet until he has finished the matter today. 
So what do we see is that Boaz is taking action. He's taking um, act, um, steps into, into this matter. The main elements in Boaz's plan are also specific steps that he takes. Because this is what true love looks like. Love is willing to do. And, and quickly, um, jump with me to the first epistle of John in the New Testament. First John verse three, um, chapter 3, verse 18. 1 John chapter 3, verse 18. It says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Not with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. So Boaz took his plan and applied action. He made contact with the nearest kinsman redeemer. He called elders to be part of the deal. He informed the nearer kinsman about Naomi's land. And this detail hidden until now about the land brings another layer into this redemption picture. It is most likely that Elimelech sold his land, the the land that that it was given to him, before going to Moab. Remember that the original plan was a short stay in that land. But now, now Naomi was back, widowed and poor, and it seemed that she is requesting a kinsman redeemer to buy back, to get back the land. And initially, this, this John Doe redeeming relative considers the purchase of the land. More land means more crops. More crops means more money. It's, it's good business. And everyone who has been in a situation where money or increase of money comes to be part of it, sometimes the, the decision is driven by the amount of money. And this is what the kinsman redeemer is doing. It's good business to acquire this land. But since we're looking at the action of love, as R.C. Sproul says, love is a verb when it's used in, a, in its biblical sense, we see that Boaz is portraying this godly way of love, a way that is in given. Love as in given. Boaz, Boaz took the steps, the necessary steps, to provide. It's a love that is focused outward. And this is contrasting to the humanistic idea of the secular idea of love. I want, I need someone, something to give me. Sex, a good time, things, image, validation, etc., etc., etc. Love is actively thinking about what is good for the other person and doing exactly that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So he loved and he gave love. Love is willing to do. Love is willing to pay the price. So here's the deal. Many are available, but just a few are willing. And this is the most contrasting quality between Boaz and the John Doe relative. The nearer relative initially saw this as a good opportunity for him, for his family. But as soon the names of Naomi and Ruth were brought into the conversation, he stepped back. He knew that if he acquired the land, ultimately, instead of going to his descendants, it would go to the future son of Ruth. 
He saw that if he buys the land, he not only would lose money in the moment, but also he would lose money later. So if Ruth would give birth to a son, it would be a big loss for this man. So this was no longer a bargain, as he thought at the beginning. It was a liability. I cannot redeem it, I cannot redeem it for myself, he says, lest I ruin my own inheritance. One of the commentators that I read noted, it remains an instructive fact that he who was so anxious for the preservation of his own inheritance is not even known by name. He who was so anxious for the preservation of his own inheritance is not even known by name. He's just a John Doe. It is important to note as well that Ruth is mentioned as a Moabite once again, and not in a diminishing way. But could that be the reason why this John Doe redeemer didn't went forward with the deal? Having a son with a Gentile woman might jeopardize the whole family. But Boaz, he knows better. He knows Ruth, and he knows the God to whom she loved and committed herself to. So for Mr. Doe, the price was too high. But for Boaz, the cost wasn't an issue. Love is willing to do. Love is willing to pay the price. Love is willing to account. So we are given this piece of cultural information. It seems that the custom was to, when sealing a deal... The method of legalizing the transaction wasn't by a piece of paper and a signature, but the giving of a sandal. And that's all the information we have. <laughs> Deal is done. I'm not, I'm not even sure if they shake hands because it doesn't say that they shake hands. The John Doe gets the sandal off and gives it to Boaz, and Boaz walks around and says, like, it's been legal. Verses 9 and 10, Boaz makes a public commitment to be faithful, to be a faithful redeemer. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have acquired all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilian and Malon for, from the hand of Naomi. Verse 10, and also I have acquired Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon to be my wife, in order to raise up the name of the one who had died, on behalf of his inheritance, so that the name of the one who had died will not be cut off from his brothers or from the gate of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. Since there are no written documents, it is important to have faithful witnesses. Boaz has ten but Boaz has way more than 10. He has all the saints of God vouching for him. So Boaz made two promises in front of the elders. First, that he would be a good husband to Ruth, and two, that he will maintain the name of the dead. He mentions Malon, and this is how we actually know that Ruth was married to Malon. Boaz is not avoiding Ruth's past. Even more, he mentions once again that she is indeed from Moab. 
we hear the phrase that love is blind. It's not true. Boaz knows exactly whom he is marrying. And he knew about Ruth's past, but also again, he knows about her now. It might serve as a declaration, Boaz is the man of excellence. He's a selfless man. A total contrast to the petty, self-seeking John Doe kinsman redeemer. He operated under the idea of what is the least I can do. How little is just enough. Not Boaz. Boaz is modeling true love, godly love. What is the most I can do so that God's law is implemented and the good of others is achieved? A word that I would like to give to those contemplating marriage. If, if it's not you, it's not for you. But if you're considering marriage, consider this. Marriage is big. Marriage is a big, a huge, and important commitment. And it shouldn't be entered lightly. So premarital and marital counseling can be a great blessing for your future marriage. Or even so... For the present of it. So Boaz here is showing the willingness of love. Willing to do. Willing to pay the price. Willing to be accountable. And this is a type of love that God blesses. The people responded to Boaz's public commitment. And we see three blessings. Blessings for Ruth. Um. We are witnesses. May Yahweh grant the woman who is coming into your home to be like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. It is affirmed that children are, are a gift from God, and also that one of the purposes of marriage is to have children that will populate the promised land. We see also our blessings, um, the people calling blessings for Boaz. And so you shall achieve excellence in Ephrathah and shall proclaim your name in Bethlehem. God gives honor to those who honor him. But we also see blessings for their offspring. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah through the seed which Yahweh will grant you by this young woman. The first son of Boaz and Ruth will be legally reckoned to be Malon's son. So the people pray that the Lord will grant them many other children that would be of Boaz. And the text shows us at the end of chapter 4 that these blessings, these prayers were answered. It was answer, answered through Obed. Ruth and Boaz have a first son. God answered the prayer through David. Remember that this is the time when the judges rule. The need of the people trapped in their moral and spiritual decline made obvious that the reality that they needed a godly leader that will lead them back to the Lord. And long before he was born, the Lord Yahweh was preparing that man, King David. A man that God himself called a man 
after my own heart, the grandson of Boaz and Ruth. But in this answer to our prayer, there is a greater fulfillment. The kinsman that Boaz foreshadowed, a final redeemer. Boaz rescued two helpless widows, but the final redeemer rescued a helpless humanity. The Son of God agreed to come to us as a man. Galatians chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. In order to redeem man, God became man. The Son of God, Jesus, became our kinsman. And while on earth, the greater kinsman redeemer willingly paid the price. What was the cost that this redeemer was willing to pay? His own life. The cost of redeeming sinners was his own blood shed on a cross. But on the third day, as God accepted and received the payment, he raised his son from the dead. And the stone on the grave moved. And the tomb, empty. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of, of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Our kinsman redeemer willingly, with the joy of fulfilling the will of the Father, endure the cross for you, for us. Jesus was not only available, he was willing to come and accomplish what neither of us could. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him... In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of his grace. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of his grace. Redeem. Redemption is one of the greatest themes in the whole Bible. Met with God's providence, met with God's grace, redeemed to purchase by paying a price. Boaz redeemed some land and two widows with a bit of money. A redeemer, Jesus, 
spilling his own blood, pay the price for a multitude of undeserving sinners. First Peter, chapter one, verse eighteen and nineteen. First Peter, chapter one, verse eighteen, nineteen. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your futile conduct inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The song of heaven is the song of redemption paid by our Lord by our Jesus. Revelation chapter 5 verse 9. And they sang a new song saying. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. People from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Is heaven filled with the eternal song of those who the blood of Christ has redeemed? We have reached the end of our series of Ruth, but we have not finished experiencing the many blessings that flow from our God through our Savior Jesus Christ. We have learned to see God in every ordinary event in our lives. In this narrative, we, we have not seen any miraculous, flashy, or spectacular events. <coughs> the sky didn't turn red. No staff turned into snakes. No multiplication of food. We see that God is always at work behind the scenes and the ordinary events of life. We have learned to see God in every ordinary event in our lives. We have learned that we can trust God when life seems overwhelming. We might not know what God is up to, but we can rest assured that He does. So even when times are bad, God is working everything for good. William Cooper, a poet and a hymn composer, wrote the the following lyrics. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will rip and fast, unfolding every hour. The bud might have have a better taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. We have also learned to do everything for his glory. God is always at work in every little detail of our days. So don't overlook those common places where he is. Remember that he is the God of our days. And he is honored 
when we live our lives to magnify and glorify Him, even when we drink or eat. So the book of Ruth is meant to present this picture and reveal God's steadfast love, His faithfulness and His redemptive plan, even in times of great sin and rebellion. Don't forget, our God is a redeeming God, a sovereign God. His plans and purposes can never be frustrated. And because he has purchased you, because he has paid the price for you, no one can separate you from him. To finish, I will leave you with another one of William Cooper's maybe most famous hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may, I thought, vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power. Till all the ransomed ones of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. When this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, nobler sweeter song I'll sing thy power to save. To finish, I would, like, I would like to invite you to stand up and pray with me. There's two verses from Scripture found in Jude. And this is my final prayer through this series. This is my prayer for you. This is my prayer for me. This is my prayer for your families. This is my prayer for your marriages. My prayer for your sons, for your daughters, my prayer for this church. Jude, verses 24 and 25, let's read it together. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Amen.